Hi, my name is Carly and welcome to Arise's Sermon of the Week. We hope that you experience God as you listen to this message and that you find practical ways to be the hands and feet of Jesus within your community. So let's open up our spiritual ears as we listen to this message. Restoration shows for homes are a big hit in our community, right? Like, like in our world, those are everywhere. You can't, can't put on some kind of HGTV or something without seeing one of them somewhere. Uh, probably the most popular one that's out there, Ada loves this show, is Fixer Upper. Right? Anybody, anybody Fixer Upper fans? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, we've come a long way since, since Bob Villa, Villa or Villa, how do you say it? Villa, Villa, Villa. Uh, we've come a long way since Bob. Um, but these shows are everywhere. Everybody loves watching these shows. What, what's your favorite one? How about that one? Fixer Upper. Uh, by the way, Pastor Joshua, who spoke last week, one of his life goals is to meet Chip Gaines. Like, if you know him, tease him about it. It's hilarious. Because we do these things sometimes with, you know, with your team and stuff. And you're like, all right, what's one living person you'd like to meet? And he's like, Chip Gaines. Like, that, that's, your per- that's your person. That's, okay, whatever. But he, he has this infatuation with Chip Gaines. Uh, how about uh, Property Brothers? Any Property Brothers fans, right? Yeah, they're, they're pretty fun. Uh, love it or list it? Any fans of love it? There's like three of you. Okay, a few of you in this room. Um, curb Appeal. Anybody Curb Appeal fans? I didn't even know what that was. I looked up what are the best home renovation shows right now, and that was on the list. And I'm like, I don't even know what it is, but somebody will. Apparently you don't. Uh, go old school to where this really started to spur was uh, Trading Spaces. Yeah. Anybody Trading Spaces fans? Uh, and then a lot of people watch Trading Spaces not because they like the show, but a lot of the ladies just liked Ty. The, uh, the, the carpenter on the show, and so then he got his, his spinoff show, uh, Extreme Home Makeover, Makeover, uh, whatever it's called, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, uh, that one came out right after that, um, uh, and all these shows are like everywhere right now, and house restoration is important, it's fun to watch those shows, it's fun to watch the whole makeover that happens on that shows, but the truth is, as we've been talking about relationships, that many of us have relationships that if they were, if they were a home, they are broken and failing, and they would have to be demolished and condemned and started over. Come on. We have some relationships that completely need makeovers. They completely need renovation uh, because if they were a home, we would have to completely gut it and start over. So what we want to do today is give some very practical biblical advice. Now, uh, if you're part of our church, you know that I love to preach and I love to shout and I love to make you walk out of the doors going, "Ah, I can take the devil by the horns and put him in a headlock or whatever. Uh, I love that. I love to motivate you and get you all excited. That's my natural style. But today's going to be very practical, very teaching oriented. But if you put it into practice, it's going to be very powerful. And I will remind you that you can never go deeper than your practice. Some people are like, I want to go really deep in the word. It does no good to go deep in the word if you don't practice any of it. Today is one of those days where we're going to be very practical, give you some very easy next steps uh, that are easy to understand but might be a little harder to live out. So, uh, so how do we do relationship restoration? Turn to Luke 15 if you want to in your Bibles. Uh, this is the parable of, you know it as the parable of the prodigal son. If you follow the Jewish Bible and the Jewish way of thought for years, they would call it the parable of the loving father. The emphasis is, are you putting it on the father or on the son? Uh, Jesus's real emphasis in the story was not the prodigal son. It was the loving father who accepted him back. 
we tend to look at it from the perspective of the son because that's our perspective. But the real story is the loving father. And we're going to look at it slightly different today. Usually we look at it, you know, from the, the gospel narrative. And, and it's so powerful because when, even when Jesus gives this parable, he's talking to this crowd and the tax collectors and sinners, the, the bad people were listening intently and the Pharisees and religious leaders were like scoffing at him and kind of laughing at him. So he starts sharing this Test this, this story to kind of share the difference of why they're thinking this way uh, in these different ways. And, and so it's this really beautiful gospel account of how the Father's love is there for you. But at the exact same moment, there are some really powerful principles for how to restore a relationship, just as you're going to see in this account. So, so uh, Luke is a physician. Uh, he takes it upon himself. If you read the very first verses of Luke, he takes it upon himself as an apologist, as a little historian, to go around and find the accounts of Jesus, then put them into what we now call the gospel. It's really just a biography of Jesus uh, that he's, he's putting into form. And then he saved it, and that's where we get the gospel of Luke today. So in Luke 15, he's recounting what Jesus said. And it says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the, the estate. Pause real fast. Uh, that would have been such a rude comment that we don't make the connection with today. Uh, to get your share of the estate meant that you were dead or on your very last limb deathbed when the father would then divvy up everything and give it to his kids. So for him to say, Dad, give me what belongs to me. Give me the share of the estate is to a, the equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's a bad relationship right there. Can anybody say Amen. Some of you might have had some kids where this kind of stuff went on. And all of a sudden, the divide is spreading and going further. So he basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead. And, and so he divided up his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So, so now we get the chasm going even farther. So it's bad enough that the father gave him everything. Most of us, if our son said that to us, we're like, you ain't getting nothing out of the inheritance. Come on. <laughs> But the father actually gave it to him. And then the chasm goes even further because once he has it, he goes and squanders it and loses it all. So, you know, you give your inheritance to your kid and while you're living, you watch him lose it all. All that you've worked for for the last 50 years, 60 years, now he is running off and losing it all. Now that divide's going even further, you would think. And so he squanders all he has in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to him, threw his arms around his neck, and strangled him. Oh, sorry, that was my version. That was what I probably would have done. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. In other words, restore him back to the position that he had before. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. If you were to keep reading, you would hear about the elder son who was the goody two-shoes who never did anything wrong and how he's going to get upset about it. But that's not important for the message today. You can read that on your own. All right, so 
If a TV show can teach you how to do some restoration in your home, let's see what the Bible can teach us about restoring our relationships. So blueprints for relationship restoration. Number one starts with this, self-examination. Self-examination. What do we see the son doing? When he came to his senses... That's really the start of all relationship restoration, whether that's your relationship with God or your fellow man. There comes a point where you got to come to your senses. Look at yourself. We're really good at looking at everybody else during a conflict. I can tell you what everybody did wrong and how they wronged me, but I'm not very good at coming to my senses and looking at myself, right? And so he says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death, right? Uh, in fact, this story really paints a picture because often we don't even come to this point until we hit rock bottom as the sun is doing in this story. Uh, we find when we hit that place at the lowest that we start looking at ourselves and stop blaming everybody else. Uh, but so often we're so busy focused on everybody else and all of our frustrations towards them, we don't look at ourselves. If you really want relationship restoration, you start with yourself. Now in counseling, there's this thing that sometimes we refer to as the 60-40 rule. Anybody ever heard of that? 60-40 rule basically says this, whoever is most wrong, whoever is the 60% person, that's their 60% wrong, that's who is supposed to apologize first. That's who's supposed to repent first. The problem with that is everybody always thinks the other person is more wrong. If you ever want to laugh, I, I can tell you this from years of counseling with people, and, and I'm a horrible counselor, but they still come every once in a while. And, 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 and years of counseling with people, Sometimes we'll meet with people differently, so it'll be like marital counseling or something, and so, so we'll meet with the wife first, and you'll leave that meeting going, her husband is the devil. How could anybody be married to that man? Oh my gosh, right? And then you meet with the husband, and you go, how has he lived with her for all these years? I would have walked out on day three for crying out loud, you know, and you get these, and you find out that both of them think the other party is wrong, and both of them think, well, of course I've done some stuff. But they're the ones, you know, because we, we know that, you know, we have a little part in it, but it's them. And so when that happens, neither party wants to move first because they're the ones who's wrong. They're the ones who should apologize. They should come repent to me, not me repent to them, right? That's the way we think. That's human nature. In fact, I've got a family in Alabama that uh, they're all elderly. One of them actually just went to be with the Lord not all that long ago. And, and uh, in Alabama, they all live kind of on the whole old homestead kind of thing. And they all live very close to each other. And there are stories of how in their elderly years, they would get frustrated with each other and not talk to each other for long periods of time. Like they live like, like uh, 300 feet or something away from each other. Some of them are closer. Like they're all right there, but they won't talk to each other. Because somebody's mad at somebody because somebody said something, somebody did something, and they're wrong, and they need to come repent, they need to come apologize, well, then we'll fix it, but not until they come over and cross to my house and ask forgiveness, right? Anybody have any family like that? Anybody know people like that? So meanwhile, they're brothers and sisters for crying out loud, but they they refuse to talk to each other, right? And that happens because of the 60-40 rule. We refuse to take the first step. Here's the problem with that. As Christians, we are called to take the first step. It doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. We are called to be agents of reconciliation. We are called to be peacemakers. So they might be 99% wrong and you might only be 1% wrong. But your 1% means you need to step up, take the first step and apologize, repent and make it right on your side. Otherwise, you'll be at a stalemate because they probably aren't going to do it, especially if they're not believers. 
So it's your job as Christians to be peacemakers, even if you're 100% in the right and they're 100% in the wrong. Find some way to step in and say, hey, I'm sorry this affected you this way, or I'm sorry for this or that. But that's hard. Now we get into stuff that doesn't sound very deep, but it's deeper than most of us are willing to go. It doesn't sound like really provocative. At the same time, the Holy Spirit will reveal names to you during the service that you won't go do that to because it's too hard. We can never go deeper than our practice. You've got to be very careful with that. And so it doesn't matter who was wrong. We as Christians have to be the one to step up. Don't let this silly 60-40 stuff happen. Step up and do our part in making it right. Are you with me? Uh, one of the biggest ways that we cause offense and cause the destruction in the first place comes from our tongue. Our tongue is a weapon that we use far too often. In fact, that is by far the most common thing, right? And most of the time, we don't want to repent from it because we just say, well, that's the way I was raised. That's just who I am. It's just going to come out like that. You just know that's my personality. It doesn't matter if you're per- That's who you were. Now you are in Christ. The old self was that. Now the new self has to be different. And that's what James says. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small, a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the bodies body it corrupts the whole body sets the whole course of one's life on fire and it itself is set on fire by hell but no man can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison poison your tongue is powerful it is ultimately the most powerful weapon on the planet just stick your tongue out at the person next to you just go da, 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 da. you don't see see some of you won't even do it you just you just <coughs> Here's the, your tongue is incredibly powerful for destruction in relationships. You can say two words that can destroy somebody for years. You can say a few words that can take their, 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 their personality and just crush it, their, their character, their ego, and crush it. You can destroy, especially with children, you can say things and speak things over them that, that they're still hearing 30 years later. Can anybody verify that? Your tongue is powerful. Therefore, we must bridle it. The, the connection he's making right here is it's like a horse. It's like a ship. You have to be able to bridle the tongue because it's going to be used for good or bad. The horse running wild can cause destruction. Let's bridle it and make it be used for good. And so bridle your tongue. I, I was thinking about this years ago. I remember uh, Pastor Josh and I, our, our kids pastor, were coaching a, um, a, a football team for a local um, high school uh, 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 home group um, thing. And we were coaching the football team, flag football team. And um, one week, it just happened, it always goes this way, happened to be, I was out of town, I was out of the country. And so Josh was coaching the team without me. So he's dealing with everything and I'm not there to help or assist. And the opposing coach starts yelling at his players, then starts yelling at our players, then starts yelling at our coaches. And Pastor Josh afterwards said, he said, here's the deal. He said, I had to bridle my tongue because if I let anything come out, it was all coming out. Anybody hear me? How many times have we said, oh, I'm just going to say this little thing. I'm just going to say this little thing. And all of a sudden you say this three words, and that three words turns into 300 words and 3,000 words, and you've got a divide going on. You have to bridle it so it doesn't destroy because your tongue naturally does that. that. That's what happens. In fact, all of our moms had this saying. They said it to all of us, right? They said, if you can't say anything good, this is what confuses me. Because moms are always like, how come we don't get an instruction book with our kids? But yet there's things like that that every mom just knows. Like, like, like I'm sure Eve said that to Cain and Abel. 
If you can't say nothing good to Cain, don't say anything. You know, like, like, it's just like it's something is DNA-wise there. But if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. So think before you talk. So there's several things about this. We've got to be careful with our reckless words. Uh, we got to think before we talk. we got to be careful that we don't just shoot things out there. Proverbs 12, 18 says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Be very careful of that. Be careful of grumbling and complaining with our tongues. Uh, we, we have a whole hashtag called first world problems, right? Uh, because we live in the United States, and a lot of what we grumble over and complain over are the very blessings that other countries would love to have and other people would love to have. And so in our society, we see that all the time. we got to be careful that we don't gossip and we don't slander. Proverbs 16.24 says, a, a perverse person stirs up conflict. A gossip separates close friends, right? So we got to be careful about that. Uh, we got to be careful that gossip doesn't, or that prayer requests don't become gossip. You ever been in those prayer requests? Oh, let me tell you, you need to pray for Sister Jenny because she is pregnant again, and she doesn't even know who the father is this time, and you need to pray for her because she is a mess. Anybody ever seen that kind of prayer request? That's not a prayer request. That's a gossip session, okay? That's not a prayer request. Um, and at our church, it's actually been a long time since I've had to declare these kind of things, and, and I don't have to very often, but I can tell you this. We have a no-gossip policy. Uh, the, one of the primary things that will get you called into the pastor's office, which always scares everybody, one of the primary things is if you gossip. And, I, and here's the thing. It doesn't matter how old you are. I've had conversations with people old enough to be my grandmother in my office that I'm sitting there going, listen, we're not going to talk that way in this church. That's not the way we're going to be. Why? You know, this is so key. You know why? Because I've never seen an alcoholic destroy a church. I've never seen a drug addict separate a church and cause division. But I have seen gossips destroy a church. So we have a no gossip policy. We're going to fight against that with everything we have. When we see it, we're going to kill it. Do me a favor. You kill it for me so I don't have to. But if it gets to me, trust me, I will kill it. Because those things put out the fire of God in the church and end up causing division and causing uh, brokenness. So we do not gossip, gossip here. Uh, But so often we're also tempted to slander as well. And here's the thing. Most of us say, oh, we would never slander. Oftentimes we slander by, by telling a story in a way that makes us look good and makes them look bad or makes our reaction look better than it really was, right? So, so if I say, pick on Micah for a second. If I, say, if I say Micah was supposed to do this thing and, and he didn't do it and it made me so mad that I just stormed off and I got so mad because Micah didn't do his job. The issue is my response. It wasn't Michael doing his job, Micah. It wasn't Mike. It was me, my response, but I'll make him look bad so it makes my response look better. Let it sink in. Him who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit's saying. Because that's one of the ways we slander way too frequently. One of the great questions you can ask about gossip and slander is, would I say this if the person was here? If the person were sitting next to me, would I say this? Now, there are moments that you got to share inside information, and there's things that, especially in ministry, where you got to help somebody, so you have to. But would I say it if they were here? Am I honoring of them, or am I dishonoring of them? Ask that big question, okay? All right, so, so number one is uh, self-examination. Number two, if we're going to rebuild relationships, is repentance. Repentance. You see in verse 18, he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. You see this spirit of repentance. This is so key because a huge problem in the American church today is that we call things repentance that are really emotional breakdowns. He has the emotional breakdown. 
He confesses. He's hit rock bottom. He's willing to eat pig food, which pigs were detestable at that time for the Jewish people. He's willing to eat pigs. He has hit his emotional breakdown. He's crying. He's weeping. But he's also going to repent. He's also going to go back and try to make it right. Uh, years ago, I had a person that uh, I was a worship leader and a youth pastor of this church and uh, many, many years ago, and I had this person that was very close to me uh, that we had been praying for for a long time. This person comes down on that Sunday. Uh, I'm up at the altar call. I'm up here, you know, like Pastor Bradwood sometimes, and I'm playing guitar. He comes down to the altar, and he kneels down. He's like right here in front of me and just starts weeping his eyes out, and he's crying, and he's, you know, he's seeking God, and, and I'm really close with him and had been praying for him, so I'm crying now, and i got to put my guitar down because I can't even leave worship. I'm crying, you know, and, and I go down, and I'm praying for him. The pastor of the church is over here praying for him too, and we're all gathered around him and praying for him, and, and, and service got over, and I was so excited, and so I called uh, another person that had also been praying for them for years, but I was very young at the time, and this person was much older than me, and I called that person. I said, hey, you won't believe it. So-and-so just got saved on Sunday morning, and I expected to hear, hallelujah, amen, that's awesome. What I heard was, how do you know? I said, because they were at the altar, and they were crying, and they were hungry for God, and they were praying, and they were tears coming down and snot, and all that fun stuff at Pentecostal altars. She said, she said, but, but how do you know? Because there's a difference between an emotional breakdown and repentance. If you've been in the church very long, you have seen people, we used to joke about it in the Pentecostal circles, they get saved every week. Like we, we, you know, it's not as common today, but when I was growing up, there were, the, there were some of those people, they came down to the altar, they cried their eyes out every week, and then they went back and nothing ever actually changed in their life. There is a difference between an emotional breakdown and repentance. Repentance is more than just crying and weeping. Repentance is the attitude that says, I am doing an about face. I am turning around. I am no longer going to be this person. I'm going to make the required steps to do that. And I am going to be different. Simply feeling bad does not prove that one is repentant. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, if you don't believe me. Listen to Paul right here. He says, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Huh. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way but by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings death. You see a divide in sorrow? There's worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. You know the difference? Worldly sorry, sorrow is that you got caught. Yeah. Worldly sorrow is that life stinks right now. Right? Worldly sorrow says, I, I, I'm just frustrated, it's hard, I'm crying, I'm sad. And you get the feelings and you get caught up in an emotion because you're frustrated, because you're suffering these consequences. Godly sorrow says, God, I have sinned against you. And I am going to make this right. It's two different perspectives on sorrow right there. Godly sorrow involves a change of heart, a change of action. Things change. Worldly sorrow oftentimes is I just got caught. Yeah. You know, we, we, we tease about it, but, but so many people go to jail and they get prison house religion or jailhouse religion, right? Why? It's not because they're actually going to change. Some people, many people do, but, but they go to prison and now all of a sudden they got caught and they're frustrated and they're scared and there's a worldly sorrow for that. We got to be careful that we don't, Mix the two. We need godly sorrow, sorrow that brings us to repentance, not just an emotional breakdown. And so we, we, have, to, we, we have to be able to do that. All right, number three, confession. 
confession. If we're going to rebuild relationships, we have to have self-examination, repentance, and confession. What do you see with the prodigal? Verse 18 that we read a second ago. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You make me like one, make me like one of your hired hands. And then in verse 21, the son said to him when he finally got there, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he planned it out in his mind. Then he went to, the, to his father and he confessed those things. Do you, do you see what's happening here? There used to be a time in the church world that scares me that we've gotten away from where people repented and then actually went back and fixed the things they repented from. There are stories that seem like they're a long way off now where people get saved and then go back to the place they worked at 20 years before and said, hey, I stole stamps from you and repay them. I know that's far from us nowadays, it seems like. But that's the confession. That's the true repentance. That now you are going to the person you have wronged and confessing your wrongness. Are y'all with me? So, so we gotta be, we got to be confessing these things. So let me give you seven A's of confession. I told you, very practical today, but these are really good. Seven A's of confession. Somebody might say, well, well aren't we just supposed to confess to God? Well, there are, there are internal heart sins. You confess those to God. But if your sins have affected somebody else, you need to fix it with that person and confess it to that person. So number one, address everyone involved. Letter A, address everyone involved. If you have sinned against people, make sure you go and address not only that person, but anyone else who saw it, anyone else who saw your offense, because it's going to build your character. It's going to make them have more respect for you and keep them from taking an offense because of how you treated somebody else. Let's make this really practical. Uh, let's, say that, let's say that you're at a, a meeting and in that meeting, your, your boss and you get a little heated and you get in a conflict and you say some things that you shouldn't have said. It's mainly between you and your boss, but there's four other people in the room at the same time. It is a powerful thing to go to your boss and confess what you just did and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do this again. We'll, we'll cover that in a minute. But it's a powerful thing to do that. But it's even more powerful to also go to the individuals and say, hey, the way I treated my boss here, that's, that's not me. I don't want to be that guy. And you start confessing to everybody involved. So address everyone involved, but especially, obviously, the person that you most have the conflict with, but everybody involved. And all of a sudden, you start looking different than everyone else. Now you start to actually be a city on a hill that stands out in the midst of our world. Uh, letter B, avoid, avoid if, but, or, and maybe. Avoid if, but, and maybe. Uh, years ago, I took some, some coaching classes, and uh, Pastor Tina, who preaches here a lot in South Shore, uh, Pastor Tina is a certified life coach, and she talks about this a lot. You can completely ruin your confession by throwing in the word if, but, or maybe, right? Have you ever had somebody come to you and they're confessing and they said, I'm sorry if I've done anything to upset you. That's not a confession. That's not a confession. You say, I'm sorry that I have done something to upset you. I'm sorry, and you need to be specific. That'll come up in a minute too. But the word if just ruined the whole thing right there, right? Uh, um, The word but, that's a huge one. The word but takes away everything you just said. This is what the word but actually means. It means everything I just said doesn't matter. What I'm about to say matters. If you don't believe me, remember in seventh grade when you were going out with that girl, come on, and you thought she was the greatest thing in the world, and then she came to you and she said, she said, I really like you, but. Come on. That word but meant everything I just said doesn't really matter. It might be true, but it doesn't matter. What I'm about to say matters. That's what the word but does. So when you walk up to somebody and you say, you say, I shouldn't have lost my temper, but you ticked me off. That is not a confession. That is not helpful. 
I shouldn't have lost my temper, but I was tired. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, but you really upset me. The word but ruins the whole thing. I shouldn't have kept, I should have kept my mouth closed, but she asked for it. Come on. <laughs> I know I was wrong, but so were you. They destroy relationships. And then, and then the word perhaps can destroy relationships and maybe. So you say like, perhaps I was wrong. There's no perhaps. You were wrong. Just own it. No, no, perhaps. Maybe I could have tried harder. No, you need to try harder. No maybes. Possibly I should have waited on her for her side of the story. Uh, I guess I was wrong. Those type of words eliminate the confession we're trying to bring. And they don't help. They end up ultimately hurting more than they, more than they help by far. And so take the word but, take the word uh, if, take the word uh, maybe, and those kind of words perhaps out of, your, out of your language whenever you're confessing. And just own it. Let them take care of their side. You own your side. Letter C, admit specifically. Admit specifically. The more detailed and specific you are in your confession, the more likely you're going to get a positive response. So when you are admitting your wrongness and confessing your wrongness, be specific to how you hurt them, how you said something wrong, how you did something wrong. Be as specific as possible. Uh, one of the ways uh, that you can, you can actually show that you did something wrong and be very specific at the same time that it's very powerful is by bringing the Word of God into it. So you can actually meet with somebody and say, hey, I've been, I've been reading my Bible and I realize I am not living up to the standard God called me to do when I did this with you and I want to live to that standard. Now you're, you're bringing another thing in. You're bringing an outside source in to show how serious you are about this and how specific uh, you are about this. And so that can be one of the things that helps. Letter D, acknowledge the hurt. Yeah. <clears throat> acknowledge the hurt. If you have hurt somebody, which you always have at some point uh, in, in some kind of aggressive conversation or whatever, acknowledge the fact that you've hurt them. Express sorrow for how hurt uh, they are and how you affected them. Show that you understand. Uh, you might say something like, listen, I know you were so embarrassed when I said this in front of these people, and I shouldn't have said that. You're acknowledging the hurt that they're feeling in that moment. Um, sometimes it's really powerful if you can describe a similar uh, thing that you've walked through. You know, when, when I talk to you like this and I said this, I know it hurts you. And I know it hurts you because I had this happen to me last year or the year before or at this place. And my boss talked to me this way and now I'm talking to you this way and I don't want to be that person. I know how it feels. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. You see how powerful those little things are? And you start to fix relationships, restore relationships, which are always be more beautiful on the other side. So acknowledge the hurt. What you may or may not know, and, and uh, depending on how long you've been a riser and part of our church, is that we actually do this a lot in our church. On almost every compel Sunday, like a big one where we're trying to get everybody here, most of those Sundays, we say something along the lines of this. Some of you in this room have been hurt by the church, and it is real, and it is painful. And I recognize that as a pastor of the church, I represent that person that hurt you, even if it wasn't me. I represent it. And I am so sorry for the way you were treated in the church. God does not want that to be the case. That is not God's heart to hurt you the way you've been hurt. And, and the truth is, it probably wasn't me or one of our church pastors that hurt them, or they probably wouldn't be here, right? But somewhere along the line, there was some church hurt, and we get to step in and, and acknowledge the hurt and acknowledge that the church did it, and we represent the church. And even if it wasn't us, and we, every time we do that, we see such healing and such growth and such beauty out of that. All right, letter E, accept the consequences. <clears throat> accept the consequences. The prodigal son demonstrated this principle really well. He said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. 
if you, especially if there's repeated violations, there's probably consequences that go with it. And when you accept those consequences, it can be incredibly powerful to restoring a relationship. So if, if you have been late to work a lot and your boss is calling you in and now there's this conflict and you say, listen, I, I accept, like you should probably let me go. I deserve to be let go. That is a very powerful thing to say, I accept the consequence for what I've done. Um, another thing that, that, that goes with this as you accept the consequences is actually taking the step to show that you're changing the future, which is the next one right there. Uh, alter your behavior. Yeah. Alter your behavior. So take the step to say, hey, I, I know I've been late uh, you know, every, every day and it's caused problems and things like that. Let me tell you how I'm solving this. I'm getting up extra early. I'm planning this out. I was late because you know, I had to get my child to the school, but now my sister's taking my child to school. Whatever. Show how you're altering uh, the behavior in the future, how it's not going to be that way. So accept the consequences, uh, alter your behavior in the future. <clears throat> and, uh, and I think there's some real power in that. Explain how your behavior is going to be different. And then the last one, and this is huge, ask for forgiveness and allow time. So most of the time, just being real with you, most of the time, if you follow these type of guidelines, these biblical guidelines for restoring a relationship, most of the time, because you're implementing the golden rule, you'll get what counselors call the golden result. The golden result is that if you treat people the way they, you want to be treated, they'll usually treat you that way back. So when you repent that way, most of the time they will forgive you and it'll actually, the relationship will get stronger. It's like a broken bone that breaks and it actually heals back stronger. Uh, most of the time it'll do that. But sometimes, especially if the offense is deep or if the offense that you're touching goes beyond you and touches something from their past, this is huge, because sometimes it's not even that your thing was that big, but there's a history of this 10 years ago and 12 years ago and this person hurt them this way and now you just touch that thing that's a very deep scar inside of them and a deep pain. Sometimes it's going to take a little while to allow time. Do not manipulate people by asking forgiveness. Sometimes we ask forgiveness and then sit there and wait because we expect them to say they forgive you or they're going to ask forgiveness back because if I ask forgiveness, then if I take that first step, they got to say it back to me and they got to ask me to forgive them. You don't do it that way. You ask forgiveness, cut and dry, that's it. Hopefully they reciprocate. But if they don't, you let it go. You did your part in peacemaking. You did your part in peacemaking. So ask for forgiveness and then if needed, allow time for them to actually be able to forgive you. And I believe most of the time you get that golden result. The fourth thing, the last thing that I want you to see, we have to have personal change. There has to be personal change. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just about an emotional moment with the Lord. It is about a change in your life where you are a different person than you were before. This is cute. This is big. Listen to me. The more you time you spend in God's presence, the more time you're in his presence with him, reading the word of God, worshiping, spending time in God's presence, the more of his grace you receive, the more grace you're going to be willing to give. One of the reasons our world is so full of a lack of grace, our world is so hard to each other, is because we've walked away from the grace of God, which is not filling our grace tank so we can extend it to others. As Christians... If we're going to be people of grace and people of relationship restoration, we need a restored relationship with God that affects our brother. Amen. In fact, Jesus was so serious about this. He said this ridiculous thing one time. Jesus said that if you go into worship and you have a gift to bring to God and you're going to worship God with your gift, but then you realize you have an issue with your brother, you know what he said? 
He said, leave the gift and give the gift anyway and just worship anyway because worshiping God is far more important than fixing it with your brother. That's not what he said at all. He said, leave your gift there and go fix it with your brother and then come back and give your gift. That's how important it is that we not only receive the grace of God, but we give grace everywhere we go. We breathe grace, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. We breathe grace on everyone we're around. So we have to have personal change. We got to be people that we are willing to change. And I'll be honest with you, if we practice those first three, self-examination, repentance, and confession, it will almost always lead to a change inside of us anyway. Those three steps lead to a personal change and being different through the opportunity, becoming more like Christ. All right, let me end with this little story. Uh, Did anybody ever watch American Idol? Anybody big Idol fans? Is is it still on? I don't even know if it's still on. You know, but, but back in the day when it first came out, that was a big, big show, right? American Idol. And uh, on the fifth season of American Idol, there was a lady on the, on the season that, that some of you may even know her name. It's Mandisa. Uh, anybody know Mandisa? I think she traveled with Toby Mac for a while. Girl can sing. She was incredible. And on the fifth season, she comes out and they do the audition, you know, with, with no background music and all this. She just sings. And, bro, she was, it was just ridiculous, her voice. And, you know, all the three judges, you got Simon and the other two, I don't remember. Simon, everybody remembers because we all hate him. And uh, so you got those three and all the judges do their thing. They're like, oh yeah, that was awesome. Good job. And so she walks off the stage and she's all excited and she's in the back room. Yeah, I made it to the next level and I get to come back or whatever. All that kind of stuff that they do. And so she's back there doing that. And when she walks out doing that, she doesn't hear Simon on the inside that while the other two judges were like, oh, she's so good. Simon made this really ugly statement and said, did we get a bigger stage this year? Because Mandisa is, was overweight. She was large. And he said, did we get a bigger stage this year? And then on top of that, uh, Paula said something. And then he said something about, yeah, she has fries. In other words, she's been eating too many french fries. On national television, anybody who battles with weight problems, you know how sensitive that is. You know. And on national television, Simon just said the rudest comments for all the world to see. In fact, Paula smacked him, if you go back and watch it. Mandisa didn't hear it because she was outside, so she hears it when the rest of the world hears it. It's a tough place to be in. And instead of editing it out, the producers who want to capitalize on these kind of moments kept it in because it's good for the ratings. It makes people more mad at Simon, which makes them want to watch it more. And so <clears throat> Mandisa said this in her comments afterwards. She said, it was, it was my worst fear come true because it's been the biggest struggle of my life and because it's something I feel so vulnerable about. For him to have said that and for it to air on national television, I was devastated. After the show was over, just a bunch of my friends gathered around me and they began to pray with me. They began to pray for Simon. They asked the Lord to have mercy on him and they began to ask the Lord to help me to forgive Simon. I realized in this moment, listen to this, I realized in that moment that this was about so much more than me and my hurt feelings. She starts to realize that this is an opportunity to forgive the way God forgives her. She starts to realize this is an opportunity to fix things. Now, here's the funny side of it. The producers are setting this up because that's what they do. It makes for good television. So everybody in America was like, Simon is a jerk. They already knew he was a jerk. They're ready for somebody to tell him off. Mandisa, why not her? And all of America would have applauded her. Good job, Mandisa. He deserved it. 
right? 60-40 rule, he's 100% wrong. You did nothing wrong. You sang and did great. So this is where it continues on. She said, it's funny because the producers were setting me up. As soon as we got there, we were all in the room and the producer said, this episode is all about the reaction. (laughs) Then they looked directly at her and said, if Simon says something mean about you, you can tell him off. You have a right to do it. In fact, they told her, we can actually bleep out any bad words that you said. We're prepared. (laughs) Come on. And most of us in America were like, tell him off. Go across, like smack him. Go across the table, right? That's the way we thought. She said, oh, trust me, I wanted to. Oh, and all of America wanted to tell her off. She walks in the room with Simon. This powerful moment, this awkward tension that's in the room now. She walks in the room. You can look this up on YouTube later if you want. And she said these words. She looked at Simon immediately. She said, you hurt me. It was painful. It really was. But I want you to know that I have forgiven you. You don't need someone to apologize in order to forgive somebody. Let that sink in. I figured that if Jesus could die so that all my wrongs could be forgiven, I could certainly extend the same grace to you. And I wanted you to know that. Hmm. Simon, so full of, full of pride, stood up and said, he's, he said, I'm so humbled today. And walks over and gives Mandisa a hug. And, you know, they hug it out kind of thing, right? And, and so then the relationship is restored. He never really apologized. At the very end, he said, he technically said, okay, I apologize. But he didn't, it was very obvious he didn't mean it. Nothing ever changed in his character, the way he acted. And on national television, Mandisa proclaimed the gospel of grace because she chose to be a person who would look like a city on a hill and stand out where everybody wanted her to be dark. Everybody wanted her to go across the table and slap him. Everybody wanted her to yell at him, cuss him out, whatever, because he deserved it. She said, no, I'm going to be different than that. Welcome to Christianity. I'm going to be different than that. And she stood up, and all of those millions of people who loved and watched American Idol, especially back then when it was still newer, all of them heard the gospel through her forgiveness of Simon. Atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, Hindus heard the gospel because of her forgiveness. Which people at your work are hearing the gospel because of your willingness to forgive? Which family members are hearing the gospel because of your willingness to because that's what sets us apart. We oftentimes look at America and say, what's different between the church and the world? How are we supposed to be salt? How are we supposed to be light? We look just like everybody else. These are the little things that make the difference what we are willing to do in relationship restoration. So big question for you. What relationship is God calling you to do the work of restoring? What relationship is God calling you to do the work of restoring? The key word there is work. We watch those restoration shows, they never sweat, they never get dirty, and they fix the entire house in 42 minutes of airtime. It's amazing. It's not gonna be that way with you, I'm just telling you. You try to fix your house, it's not gonna work quite that easy. You try to fix the relationship, it's not gonna look like Dr. Phil. I wish it would. I wish World was the Brady Bunch where everything just got resolved in 30 minutes or whatever. I wish it was, but it isn't. It is gonna take you rolling up your sleeves, having hard conversations, biting your lip, bridling your tongue, But when you do it, you start actually living the life of Christ that he lived. That he would be on the cross in excruciating pain. The word excruciating means out of the cross. They made a word, it was so painful. In excruciating pain and look down at everybody else and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
When we forgive that way, we start to look like Christ, which is what the word Christian means. Like Christ, little Christ. We become like Christ in the way that we forgive. Would you stand up with me around the room? <clears throat> All right, so relationship blueprints. If you want relationship restoration, start with self-examination. Look at yourself first, not them first. Look at you first. Deal with you long before you ever look at them. Repentance. Repent before them. Confess before them, number three. And personal change. And it leads to a beautiful, more beautiful relationship. Now, Jesus actually modeled this perfectly for us. And in that story of the prodigal son, you see this image of somebody who runs away from the father who represents God and somebody who runs away from him and comes to his senses and then returns. There are some of you here this morning that you're coming to your senses. There are some of you here this morning that that you walked in and right now, even in this moment and throughout the service, the Holy Spirit's been dealing with you and you know you're not right with God and you know now is the time. Except some of you come from a background that you're scared of God, you're scared to come back to him because you think he's gonna browbeat you, you think he's gonna hurt you in some way. But what you see in the story of the prodigal son is a father with arms wide open inviting all who are willing to come back, all who are truly repentant to come back. And not only does he come back, but he gets restored to his previous position. God wants to bring you back in and restore you. Hey guys, wasn't that such an amazing message? If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to follow our podcast. Also, make sure to share this with your friends on social media and use the hashtag MyAriseChurch. For more information or to give to this ministry, go to MyAriseChurch.com. I hope to see you guys soon.